This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to DDPS. I should get a microphone and be on the show like a regular person. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And I'm Christopher Rice, and you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric, finally. Brought to you by the worst intro ever. What a mess. Yeah, I should have been more prepared to actually do a show. Well, I have been suggesting that we hire, what do we call it, a serving lad? I think I called it a serving boy, and Brandon changed it to serving lad because serving boy creeped him out. Yeah, and it has a serving lad has a certain um, Game of Thrones medieval <laughs> quality. That, like we're having a fantasy experience here at uh, Dinner Party Studios. And so, one of their responsibilities should be to just put a microphone in front of you wherever you are, in case you say something witty and amusing. We can use it for something, even if we're not recording actively a podcast. Eric should be constantly mic'd at all times, or at least monitored. <laughs> listen, listen. Listen, Listen. Landa. Okay, we're dealing with a couple things today. What? One is that after, I would say, two or three solid months of cloudy, overcast skies here in Los Angeles, of which Eric is an enormous fan. Absolutely. I just have no interest in sunshine whatsoever. <laughs> it could never come out. The sun could never come out again, and I'd be just fine with that. Well, I'm sorry to report that as of this recording day, the, the sun, sun is out, out here in Los Angeles. <laughs> the storied Los Angeles and sun I am not happy about is it. back. Okay, but a couple things. Let's put this in perspective here. <laughs> So let's just put it in perspective. Don't manage me. <laughs> We're not in Texas, which is currently like the hottest place on earth. Or Louisiana, which I think is even hotter than Texas. Absolutely. Um, we're not being pelted by tornadoes or vicious storms, which a lot of the country was the week before we sat down to do this recording session. So we're still enjoying fairly temperate L.A. weather. It's just not before the, the one. Before the entire state catches fire and goes <laughs> up like a torch. <laughs> All right. All right, but, but fingers crossed. Fingers crossed that's not going to happen. 
God, I hope not. It's been so humid. I'm hoping that it won't. I my dream is that the way with since we're having climate change anyway, that the weather pattern will change and Los Angeles will become a tropical climate. Oh God! With much more moisture and a lot more rain and way fewer fires and that sort of thing. Yeah, but, yeah. And um and more humidity and um a much more temperate kind of. I, I guess tropical is never going to be temperate, but then we have had so that we're not subjected because basically we live in the desert that just happens to be at the sea. And yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of the desert. No. And so you moved here for your entertainment dreams, not because you love the weather. Yeah. yeah. There was nothing about the location. Like I'd, I'd have just, I'd be in London. It Would you? Yeah. That's where my weather lives. That's, Your weather lives in London. That's right, baby. <laughs> I could write a song. Yes, it is really. That's my people. When I moved to London years ago, were like, "You moved here from Los Angeles," and I'm like, "Yes, isn't it dreamy?" And they were like, "No, it's raining. <laughs> it's a nightmare." All right. Speaking of things that get as hot as you do on a cloudy day, <laughs> you have a question. You are. We have talked. Earlier in the season, if you will, the year, we never take a break. So we're just one giant season. And you could be listening to this at any point in time. It could be, you know, the year 2050 and right. you're listening to this. So it may have no actual relevance. Because society has collapsed and the only I thing left is our fucking podcast and our terrible ideas about how to live. So what's left is completely screwed. Maybe they aren't so terrible. Maybe if people had listened to us, society wouldn't have collapsed in 2050. <laughs> and we will be. I'm just saying. We will be the new Bible. Anyway, you have a question, though, that has come to you. Well, it is just one of those things that's just, it occurred to me, but the preface was, we have been talking about this season through a series of wonderful, fortuitous circumstances. I am now in possession of a beautiful townhouse condominium. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to be. Right, right now, it is a gutted townhouse condominium that right. I am renovating, and so that lots of, you know different elements to that process. And one of them includes shopping for kitchen appliances, something I have to say I've really never done in my life. I bought a refrigerator once, mm, maybe mm -hmm. even twice, but at least once. Because um, apparently landlords have stopped buying refrigerators for apartments. I don't know what that's about because, you know, they're not making enough money or whatever, but whatever. Um, but I've never bought a stove. And I have always wondered, even prior to buying a stove, why ovens open the way that they do. Like, mm -hmm. you've heated up this enormous metal plate to a pretty high temperature, and so now you're going to fold it out into the middle of your kitchen, block most of the walking around space, mm -hmm. and put this enormous hazard, because it's a really hot piece of metal, right, right in the middle of your room. Mm -hmm. Why don't... Ovens open like French doors or to the right. side. In professional kitchens, I think they do. Yeah. So why in people's home kitchens do – is there some advantage? I'm not a big cook. I make eight mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. and I make them really well. You're a consistent cook. Yes. I yeah. And I am good at the things that I'm good at, but I don't make a lot of stuff. Baking right. is not really a thing for me. I roast a roast once a year. You know, like it's – it's limited. So there may be some advantage of right. having the door there when you open the oven, but I can't see it. And the people who sell and manufacture appliances, they don't know either. 
Because you were asking them I've this week. I've been asking them yeah. because I thought, well, surely these people will be able to give me the logical answer. And they can't. So if you know why ovens open the way that they do out in, you know, folding down like they do as opposed to opening, even if it just opened like a door from one side to the other so you could fold it back and out of your way, mm-hmm. I would still think it would be less dangerous yeah. and more advantageous. You could have easier access to the oven. You can't even stand in front of the thing that you're basting or cooking or anything else. And it's never recommended that you set something on the opened oven door, right? I don't right? think so, because you would set it on the stove anyway and then close the door again. Plus, having to open the whole door that way, you let all the heat out of the oven. I, I just don't see any advantage to it. But like I say, not a great cook. So if you know what the advantage is or the reason that ovens all open this stupid way, please Post it on the Facebook page. Or- Absolutely. Join us on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. Maybe we'll turn this into a Wednesday question if we remember. But I think our party people are good enough that they will come commenting on the post thread, on the episode post, excuse me, and start answering the questions. Maybe to the best so. Of their ability. I will tell you, I think the answer is going to be harder to find. And I know that because Brandon is not grumbling an answer into our ears, which at moments like this, he usually does. <laughs> <laughs> no, that... I have no clue, he just said. No, yeah. The booth is telling us Brandon have no is clue. not sure where the kitchen in his house is located. <laughs> he can find the refrigerator, but that's it. Absolutely. Um, but you're excited, right? This is an exciting thing you're doing, picking out appliances, renovating the place. Yeah, it's a measured kind of excitement. <laughs> like, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of things to pick out and, and whatever. I'm enjoying that part of the process, but it takes the time that it takes. And, you know, like, I would love to already live there. Um, well, and we're getting to a place where the fun stuff is starting yes. to happen. We're right now. We're still at the oh good, the inspector, the shower pan, and the master bathroom passed inspection. Right. Woohoo! You know, yeah. like, and it looks like a hole in the floor with the with cement around it. It's okay. That's really exciting. Yeah. So the the. The excitement is measured at this point. But you're at the base of the hill, looking at yes. all the way up the hill. That's what's really going on, because once you tear everything out, it's like, okay, we're committed. There's no going back, but we haven't truly gone forward yet. Right. And there were moments that um, that really do sort of get me going. Like there's like a, what? Well, I, there was a wall. That, the way it was built, it was very 80s mm-hmm. when I got the place. And there was a staircase, but it was like behind a wall. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like this really narrow, difficult to negotiate hallway Right. that was right next to a hallway that already existed, like the entrance hallway. And so I had them tear out that wall mm-hmm. so that the staircase was exposed. Right. And it opened up the space. And, you know, I could see it, even though it's not there, with a banister and yeah, nice hardwood treads and a runner on it and looking all beautiful and whatever. But I could start – it was the first time I could see something – that was like, okay, mm-hmm. there it is. Right. I'm not wrong. Yeah. And there was a place where they tore out a soffit in the master bathroom that had nothing in it mm-hmm. after splaining to me mm-hmm. repeatedly how, oh, there's probably all kinds of ductwork back there and electrical stuff, and we're not going to be able to run. Mm-hmm. I was like, just take it down and <laughs> let's see what's back there. And there was literally a single wire. Uh-huh. And it was against the wall, so it wasn't anywhere near where the oven. I don't know why they put this oven, but it created all of this extra space. So that was, you know, like, okay, good. That was great. It was great news. But it was really like, so now there's a bigger hole in the wall, another big hole in the wall. So, yeah, it's we're at a a measured stage, but I'm hoping in the next couple of months we'll start doing stuff where we're doing 
beauty projects. You yes, know, absolutely. The new tile is going in. Absolutely. Laying the hardwood floors or whatever, and then I'll be it's much very, more then excited. Then you'll be more excited, more excited. Okay, okay. So that was our personal talk. That was our get to know us on our podcast chat. Now it's time for the dark, <laughs> fucked up shit. Excuse How do you like language. me now? How do you like me now? Okay, we're starting a new segment of the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film oh, Festival. Oh, yeah, new volume. Southern Sins. Southern Sins. We are going to the deep south, baby. As you hell have been begging us and nagging us and whatever, and I would like to tell yes. you this is a lot harder than you think it would be. We try because, to do. Well, here's what we do. If you're new to us, and if you're not, forgive the rep- repetition here, but these are we call these true crime pairings. In the film festival, is we do a true crime TV club about the case the first week, and then in the second week, we do a movie inspired by the same case. True crime TV club means a documentary about the, in- right. the, the the investigation of the crime, and then we do a movie that's been made about the same case, as Christopher Absolutely. just said. And finding two of those for Southern Murders... Hard. Try it sometime. And and here's the thing. That, like but, we found a podcast that somebody had filmed. Would you watch us if we just filmed ourselves we're not talking into microphones? <laughs> would you all watch that? No. I was like, why would anybody watch this when you can just listen to it? I Oh, you mean if we put like our podcast on YouTube? On YouTube with just us know. talking into microphones. Yeah. I'm curious. Like we found that and I was like, why would anybody watch this? But who knows? Because they're literally just talking into microphones. But okay, but so so here's the thing. We did have some suggestions, okay, but some of these suggestions required us to watch. We have already had our go around during this festival with a really bad made for TV movie from the late eighties, and we just weren't willing oh. to do that again. So some of you, I know Gina Rowden, you had a case, and I know Glenn Woods had a case that he suggested. Those were great cases, but the movies involved were just not not there. Not there. So we couldn't go with those. So we have settled on our first pairing. The one we really tried for was Midnight in the Garden of Oh, right, Evil yes. Because the movie was, but we could not find it. That's the thing. We could only find a podcast. We couldn't we find, find a documentary. documentary. Because technically, true Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is actually true crime. It's actually, yeah. like, the movie is kind of an adaptation, but the original book by Jeremy Brent, Jeremy Brent? No. John Brent Brent or something? Jeremy Brent played Sherlock Holmes yes. on, on television, so I don't think it was him. He was also Freddie Einsford Hill in the musical um, My Fair Lady, the movie musical My Look Fair Lady. Look at you. Yeah, he's the one who sang uh, On the Street Where You Live. Anyway, so not him. <laughs> not him. The uh, the one, the other Brent, the one who wrote the um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, is actually a true crime novel. It's not really a novel. It just reads like one, right. which is kind of, I think, the reason it was such a huge success. It really mm-hmm. was. It was a great read. Yeah, and so a lot of people suggested that, and we also, as you said, we couldn't find a documentary. We really tried, but yeah. we did manage to get two that we two. put together. But, you know, if you're looking for your place to break into the uh, the do- the true crime documentary field, the South is the place to go. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you're looking to make movies based on Southern crimes, look at Southern Fried Homicide and start making movies about them because we'll do it if we if you do that. That was when we gave up on Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. We hunted down the show Southern Fried Homicide on Discovery Plus, and there was not a single episode devoted to Jim Williams was his name, yeah, I believe, the Kevin believe. Spacey character from that movie. Jim Cannot Williams. believe. I thought surely there'll be a Dateline or there'll be something. Nothing. Well, here's the thing about Datelines and, and those regular shows. 
there's a ton of episodes up, but because they make so many episodes, they don't actually go back very far. Like we were able to find, unless you want to go into the bowels of YouTube where stuff has been pirated, we couldn't go back any further than 2015 when it came to 2020. And I think it's a similar situation with Dateline. They're, uh, the Datelines are syndicated out the ass, so they don't make them and all Dateline, available online. Dateline may be after Midnight in the Garden of Good yeah. and Evil. I don't know. It was kind of, I don't know, was it the beginning of true crime? Dateline wasn't always the Dateline that we know today. Like, Dateline would just interview celebrities sometimes. They weren't always entirely true crime focused. I think they evolved into that over time. They still kind of do that sometimes. Yeah. They do weird things. They'll do, like, yeah. Okay, this is not really Dateline, but yeah. all right. Yeah. Yeah. But, so all but, that's to say... All that's to say, here we are. We settled on two different pairings, and the first pairing is I I knew about this case. You you were the one that actually suggested this one. Yes. But I had known about this, but I knew about this be, specifically because of the movie that we're going to discuss next week, which is the movie Bully, directed by Larry Clark, very controversial director who was kind of a big deal in the late '90s, early 2000s, which is when that movie was made. But the story is the murder of Bobby Kent in Florida, and we found we found kind of an older documentary. But it's an older crime, so exactly it worked out. Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So today's True Crime TV Club is going to be a discussion of the uh, episode Payback for a Bully, which was an episode of the show American Justice with Bill Curtis, 
blast from the true crime past. Right? <laughs> blast is the key word. Uh, standard disclaimer. I'll try to say it faster like the disclaimers at the end of radio ads. You do not have to watch the documentary we're going to discuss today. Eric and I are going to try to serve it up for you in such detail that you will feel like you watched it even if you haven't. Thanks for watching True Crime TV Club. Okay, back to the normal show. Um, <laughs> so we'll just dive right in here. I'll start reading my overwritten notes and Eric will interject with information that is actually interesting as we go right along. And then, <laughs> as always, my favorite part, we will hear the story Eric heard, hiding in the shadows of the details. Lurking in the background. Uh, if you're not familiar with the fact that there are two Hollywoods in America. At least. There's probably more than two. It's like Springfield. Every, every state has one. Florida has a Hollywood. Okay. Which I know because as a child I used to watch Hollywood Squares and they would occasionally do a Florida week where they would go to Hollywood, Florida. Really? Yes. <laughs> really? And they would just be on the beach and it would be whatever. It would Everybody would be drunk. Right. Four miles west of Fort Lauderdale is this suburb of which we speak, Hollywood, Florida. It's described by our narrator as a middle class area. On the night of July 14th, 1993, eight young friends meet in a driveway they had talked about going drag racing. Classy. This would turn out to be a cover story. At 11.45 p.m., this group of people head out to an isolated construction site not far from the Everglades. Classier still. They are all in their late teens and early 20s, and most of them are high school dropouts. Among them is 20-year-old Bobby Kent, a popular, good-looking weightlifter who has a reputation as a bully. He may have been hoping to reunite with his girlfriend, 17-year-old Alice Willis, on the night in question. She was among the group of kids that went out to the swamp. We are then introduced to K.O. Morgan, who is described as Lisa Connolly's defense attorney. We haven't met Lisa yet, so this, this night did not end well. Foreshadowing. <laughs> he tells us that when the group parked, Bobby and Alice walked off into the dark together hand in hand, while the rest of the group stayed by their parked cars. Then, Because nothing's more romantic than being in the dark in a swamp in the middle of the night. And a construction site. Right. Like, if anyone would ever said to me, you want to go check out this construction site late at night, I would be like, no, and back up. And I'm never going anywhere with you again. Like, I I'm sorry. They would have lost me at let's meet in the driveway. <laughs> You're like, there's tea inside. I'm sorry. In the driveway? I don't uh, No. Yeah. So uh, Bobby and uh, Alice have walked off into the dark together. 18-year-old Heather Swallers, a dropout and drug addict. They really don't mince words in this narration about I, these All of young these people. seems really kind of judgy, too. Yeah. Like, if you didn't make it through high school, you know, like, best of luck to you. But right. don't know that there's, that's necessarily very descriptive of anything. Listen, Linda. Yes. We were in... Early late '90s true crime documentary narration. There was not, let's say, social media sensitivity oh, no. around None. this. This was all shorthand for everything. Everybody was a. She was a cheap little whore from <laughs> South Florida. It was like, okay, wow. I mean, and Bill Curtis was like someone's dad who had come in to tell you the moral of the story. Absolutely, this is what happens to kids who don't do their lessons. You know, like that was okay. definitely the tone. Yes, that's it. Was it. So, yeah, so it was kind of judgy. Okay, so 18-year-old Heather Swallers, a dropout and drug addict, walks up to the couple, says she wants to go swimming, and starts taunting Bobby about whether or not there are alligators in the water. Then 17-year-old Donnie Simonek, another member of the group, and Alice's current boyfriend, emerges from the darkness and stabs Bobby in the back of the neck. 
We then go to an interview with Alice, who is clearly in prison, but has had a makeover. She's had her hair done. And but she's whatever. still wearing a jumpsuit. She's wearing a jumpsuit. So there's none of the Dateline misdirection. There's no kidding around. Like, if you were watching it on something with fewer, with like the old line count on the little right. cathode ray tubes, and it was less than 11 or 12 inches, you might have been fooled. But I don't think so. So Bobby then calls out to his best friend, Marty Puccio, and says, Marty, whatever I did, I'm sorry. But Marty, another member of the group, is already coming for him with a knife in his hand as well. We then interview Frank Ilaraza, the detective with the Broward County Sheriff's Office. Sure. Sure. Uh, Yeah, sorry. Apologies if I mispronounced your name, Detective Ilaraza. Marty stabs him in the gut, the detective tells us. Bobby tries to run, and the men chase and tackle him. And he says he guts him, so I, it was like Ugh. he stabbed him and then pulled the knife up. It was, it was horrible. It was a really vicious attack. Then Derek Kaufman, another member of the group and a self-proclaimed gang leader, delivers the final blow. He stands over Bobby and smashes him in the head with a baseball bat. Lisa Connolly, who has apparently not leveled any blows, but whose defense attorney we have just met earlier in the interviews, and her cousin, Derek DeVerico, uh, De stay by the cars, but they help dump the body at the edge of the canal. And then suddenly Lisa is interviewed, but her face is blacked out. But I could also see prison jumpsuit traces. I do not understand why her face was blacked out. I thought that was such a bizarre... Obviously, it was her request, but, like, you're already in jail. It's not like you're in the witness protection program. No. Why is it that you... And we're treated to, like, endless photographs of her later throughout the whole special. Absolutely. Her her identity was not a secret. This case, spoiler alert, this case ended up in the press, so obviously. Clearly. In fact, they started at the end, so the really going back and covering through it is sort of play-by-play after fact because it's not really a, a mystery who did it. The kids reassemble and drive to the beach, which is their usual hangout. And while they're there, Derek, the supposed gang leader who also leveled the killing blow, tells them he's done all this before and it's no big deal. And all they need to do is come up with a convincing alibi. So together, the group cleans off the baseball bat he used, uh, throws the knives in the ocean, and constructs an alibi that they were all hanging out in South Beach and Bobby wasn't with them. He went out with a girl nobody knew. Then Derek warns the group that if anyone talks, that person would be next. Then suddenly we go to Bill Curtis in a very fake courtroom, a fake courtroom with extras pretending to do court things in the background. Not sure what the reason was behind that, but yeah, yeah. it's like, so are you interrupting a court proceeding that's in process? Because <laughs> Bill, Bill, could you clear? Could you clear out? Could we got to try those parking crew get tickets. Out of yeah, here? We're, we're, we're having a trial here. Get out. Yeah, it was a strange choice, but I guess it's a standard thing that they do on American Justice. I yeah, I have to say it's been a while since I've seen since a anyone has seen American. I, re- I remembered sort of halfway through that I had seen this before, but about twenty years ago, I think that maybe fifteen years ago. All right. Yeah. Early Thursday morning, July 15th, 1993, Bobby Kent's father, Fred, starts to worry because his son has not come home. Mr. Kent goes to pay Bobby's friend Marty a visit. Bobby lies and says he hasn't seen him. Excuse me, Marty lies and says he has not seen Bobby. Then Marty's girlfriend, Lisa Connolly, appears in the doorway, and Mr. Kent can immediately tell something's wrong because she is crying hysterically, and Marty tells her to shut the fuck up and get back in the house. 
So my take on that was that she was expecting Mr. Kent to come and say they had found Bobby's body and she started the performance too soon? What did I you think? really, like, I think that she is has a different plan than everybody else in this particular crime situation. And I think she isn't really the brightest bulb on the marquee, but thinks that she's got it figured out how she can put the blame on other people and right. get away with this. And so she began a performance that she jumped her cue. Yes, that's what I this thought. This was a performance she was planning for that at a certain point, and this was not the point to do it. It actually occasioned more suspicion than it than it deflected. Right, absolutely. That was my take on it. Yeah. But it was hard to say. And Marty, being the, um, the absolute uh, brain trust that he is, Handled it beautifully with right. shut the fuck up because that's what you say to your crying girlfriend in front of your best friend's father from down the street when he's looking for his lost son. That totally covered. Yeah. Beautiful. Everybody covered great. Mr. Kent files a missing persons report, which is what I would have done as well. Then the police get a tip that Bobby has been killed because Lisa has apparently told her friend about it. Because Lisa's just great. The detectives are dispatched to interview Lisa and Marty, both deny knowing anything. They would end up being the only members of the group to stick to the alibi they all agreed to stick to at the beach after the murder. So three days after the murder, Bobby's ex-girlfriend calls the police because she's afraid the other members of the group are going to kill her. Now, this is Alice, I think we're talking about, who was the one who walked down to the water with him. So she rats out everybody because she thinks they're going to murder her. She agrees to have her confession tape recorded. Um, but she's not really understanding. Like, they're all thinking, well, if I didn't stab him, I'm fine, right? And it's like, no, you all conspired together to bring this man to this dark place. And then disposed of his body and yeah. then came up with a cover story. So it's going to go bad for all of you. There's no, like, get out of jail free confession. That isn't going to happen. And uh, she expresses astonishment when she is charged with murder one. <laughs> is just these people. Okay, the same day Lisa's cousin Derek goes to the police and agrees to take them to the scene of the crime. So really no fortitude with this so crew Derek, at all. So Derek, the guy who threatened to kill anybody yeah. who ratted him out, is like one of the lead rats and actually takes them to the body. Detective Illarazzo. Which is still just lying there. They disposed yeah. of it so brilliantly. That it's just thing. lying there in the sun on the side of the canal. And apparently nobody at the construction site has noticed it. Um, and I guess they were expecting alligators to just drag it off. Because I, I, it's just like. I, why not just roll it the extra two feet into the actual water? I just. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that murder is a good idea, but no. if you're going to go in there, go all the way in. Yeah, it's crazy. But I will say I was reminded of a case that we discussed on another episode that we actually ended up – it was the one where they straight washed the victim in one yes. special. The, the body was disposed of in a Florida swamp, and the alligators did get the body, yeah. which I think complicated the recovery effort. Yes. Yeah, if that's part of your plan, then, you know, go all in. Arrest warrants are issued for the rest of the group. Around 5 a.m. Monday, July 19th, the detective goes to Marty's home, but he's not there. As he's leaving, he looks down the street and he sees Mr. Kent walking out of the house, and he realizes this man has not been told that his son's body has been found. Marty turns himself in by that night. All seven of the killers are soon in custody. None took responsibility for the plot. They all claim the ones who really wanted Bobby dead were Marty and Lisa, and they wanted him dead because Bobby was a vicious bully. All plead not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder. 
uh, some of these killers didn't even really know Bobby. It looked like Marty and Lisa sort of whipped them all up into this fervor with an account of how Bobby allegedly well, behaved. it looked like Lisa did. It didn't look, the way it was described through this, it doesn't seem that Bobby participated in anything except the killing part. Not Bobby, but I mean, Marty. Marty, yeah, sorry. I know. The, the Ys make it hard. Bobby and Marty. That's it. That's yeah. really tricky. No, I'm just an old dingbat. <laughs> sorry. But right. Uh, okay, so Bobby and Marty, let, let's go into what we do know about this relationship. Bobby and Marty grew up together in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, the prosec- well, they're best friends. The prosecutor, Tim Donnelly, is interviewed. He tells us about the history of their friendship. He said they were insever- inseparable. Bobby was the son of Iranian immigrants, and Marty was his quintessential sidekick who always seemed to linger in his shadow. But then a darker side to the relationship developed. In their teens, they start to spend countless hours working puberty. out. Yeah, and the working out part, okay, okay, working out in your teens is not necessarily the darker part, but it's rumored they're taking steroids. And I'm telling you, the number of cases we talk about here where the introduction of steroids is, I think, a legitimate portal to some some full-on crazy, if not outright criminality. Um, Bobby allegedly starts bullying his more passive friend. Uh, we are introduced by interview to an author named Jim Schutz, who wrote a book about the case called Bully, which is also the basis for the movie we're going to discuss next week. Yes. He claims that Bobby even sicks his dog on Marty when they have fights. Uh, Marty drops out of high school in the 11th grade, but Bobby graduates, which I thought was an interesting detail. To many people in his community, Bobby doesn't seem like a bully. Some describe him as Eddie Haskell. That's the character from Leave it to Beaver. I think that is a terrible description of Eddie of Bobby of Bobby that's yeah. just stupid I it's like it's like oh so you've never seen leave it to beaver right so. like I Eddie Haskell is a total butkus he's yeah. complete apple polisher around adults but he doesn't turn into a monster with the other children as soon as the adults leave the room he yeah. is not what he is is not a good kid right he's not the sterling kid that he presents himself to as the with the adults, which is not an accurate description at all. Eddie Haskell is not a bully. That's yeah. a terrible description of, of this guy. This guy was borderline psychopath. Yeah. Um, that was what I was really interested on, where you were going to come down at, because that's the crux of this story is, was he really a bully or did they make up that he was a bully to justify murdering well, him? You know... I have very okay. strong opinions. You will get to your thoughts at the end. I know you like to do that, so but I this try is, and hold my, keep my powder dry until we get there. So Okay, so this is the part in the special where it was like if you were watching 15 years ago and were starved for gay content, you would have sat up like an Irish setter on the sofa because they just say out of nowhere, they begin expressing a virulent hatred of homosexuals while simultaneously exploring hardcore gay pornography, and you're like, What? Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. (sighs) 
why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Yeah, I think a couple of healthy adolescent males with a virulent hatred of homosexuals who are all down for hardcore gay pornography is like, I think that's a real red flag on the play. There's a a set, I don't know what you call it, the set dressing they use. They have this table with all these beer bottles and then clearly hardcore gay porn magazines on the table. And I'm like, this probably at the time was the first time anyone had seen a gay porn magazine on network television, commercial television before. Very possibly. <laughs> it's like... And then they they uh, they made an amateur gay porn film. This was the part of the story that I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? So they apparently pick up a 46-year-old man and, quote, force him to perform sexually in front of the camera. I think they did a sort of Reenactment. I might be confusing the movie later this week. We'll talk about it then. But, like, they show the man sort of dancing around a room naked. I'm like, how did they force this guy to do this? Like, what were the... What, I, I need the whole story here. So I think the plan was to blackmail him with the video. And it was like, well, actually, if you don't participate in the video, there is no blackmail material. Right. I don't know. Maybe they were physically threatening him. I have no idea. It seems like there was also some other charges in and mm. around their lives that were kind of glossed over. Yeah. They, it just, we rushed to the part of the story they wanted to tell and kind of breezed past this part. This was like, it sort of happened and then off we went. So in early 93, a third person comes into Marty and Bobby's disturbed circle, as they describe it. Marty begins dating another high school dropout, 18-year-old Lisa, who we've there met we are previously. Just, oh, yeah, constantly. High school dropout. High school dropout. High like, school, yeah, yeah, it was a warning, kids. Don't yeah. drop out of high school or you, too, will murder your best friend and end up in prison for life. Like, what? Yeah. Um, 18-year-old Lisa zeroes in on Marty as a great boyfriend, but she's threatened by his attachment to his best friend. Lisa tries to get Bobby dating other girls, and so she sets Alice Willis up with Bobby, who we met at the start of the special. At 17, she'd already been married and separated and had a child, so she was an amazing prospect. I'm sorry, but Jesus Christ. They date for a few weeks. She claims he got jealous and possessive of her and that he frequently beat her and then begged for forgiveness. So another report of Bobby Kent's abusiveness. Right. Bobby is now demanding more of Marty's time. In June 1993, Marty reveals a secret. He tells Lisa that he wants to break free from Bobby, that Bobby has been abusing him physically. And Lisa claims she wanted Marty to confront Bobby about it because she has learned she is pregnant with Marty's baby. By most accounts, it was Lisa who came up with the plan to kill Bobby. Eric is shaking this, his I mean, it's head. just like... Oh, my God. Just the complete recipe for disaster. Everybody, even if the murder hadn't happened and they'd just gone on and had the lives that were laid out for them, this was a pretty sad group of people. Well, given Lisa's excuse that she started talking to the entire group about killing Bobby because she was trying to look cool and be accepted should tell you a lot about this group. That if that's what it took to be cool and accepted. And after all of it, she even says that, I just, I didn't think they were going to really murder, murder him. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. 
The state seeks the death penalty for all seven conspirators. The brutality of the crime, they say, is indicated by the wounds. The trial begins on September 1994. Derek and Heather are allowed to plea bargain if they testify against the others, which they happily do. For each trial, the prosecution employs the same strategy, that it was a conspiracy, that they were all acting together, and that Lisa wanted Bobby eliminated because she was pregnant. Is Derek the cousin or the gangster? I got confused because there's Donnie and there's Derek. Donnie is the gangster and Derek is the cousin? I think it's vice versa. Donnie is the cousin and Derek is the self-proclaimed gangster. Okay. Okay. And then we're going to get into how the movie portrays people next week, which right. can get things really confusing as well. But we'll unconfuse you because that's our job here at TDPS. Right, because we're always crystal clear. Encyclopedia Eric on the case. <laughs> hey, you knew that thing about Jeremy Brent from the beginning. You're I like, did. But you're like the IMDb of but old. But I didn't know who actually wrote the fucking book. You're like the IMDb of old British things. That's why I love you. <laughs> Okay, so the prosecution is claiming that Lisa placed a call the day before the murder to her friend Alice Willis, that she told her what she and Marty had been discussing. Lisa denies she was planning a murder. She says it was just gossip. Like, maybe. People are saying we might kill Bobby tonight by the swamp. In her bedroom. Yeah. In Alice's confession, which she gave because she thought she would not be charged with murder for admitting she participated in a conspiracy to commit murder. She claimed that it was a recruiting call, that that's absolutely what Lisa was trying to do, was to get her to play along. Alice okay. goes to Lisa's house. Uh, she to, she brings her two drug-using dropout friends with her, Heather and Donnie. Right. Jim Schultz, the author of the book on the case, says, this is notable. it's notable that these folks were drawn to this darkness rather than running from it, which I think is a good point, because if some friends are calling you and they're like, hey, yeah, we're thinking about killing Joe, you you would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be busy that night. I don't know. It just um, sounds yeah, crazy. Sitting in the car outside while the police yeah. bust this and arrest all of you after I tell them that you're planning a murder. Right. Instead, they're like showing up to the party. Okay. Right. Uh, the prosecution then alleges that Lisa went looking for a pro professional killer, and that's when Derek, the alleged gang leader, entered the chat. They asked Derek to get a firearm. He says he can't get them one that quickly. So now the cousin is involved. Lisa's cousin, Derek, is involved in the conspiracy. And I think the implication here, which is something we'll see next week, is that he's saying if you can't get a gun, go ahead and do it with a knife and a baseball bat and all the other weapons that they did end up actually using for the crime. Jim Schutz, the author of the book Bully, says that Marty is such a passive guy, it's difficult to believe he was recruited into such an aggressive plan. I'm going to want Eric Shaw Quinn's thoughts on that in a minute. So the group puts together two knives, a lead pipe, and an aluminum baseball bat. Derek, the supposed hitman, has been unable to produce a gun, even with an acceptable waiting period. So they then talk through the murder, and the plan unfolds as it was shown to us at the start of the special. And I think as uh, Jim Shoots wisely says, you keep waiting. I actually wrote a first time I've written down a direct quote from someone in one of these. You keep waiting for the horror of it to overcome these kids. And so the fantasy they've talked themselves into evaporates, and you keep waiting for them to stop, and they don't. I thought that was a pretty wise thing to say. Yeah, it was, it was the group energy. It got going, yeah. and I guess they couldn't see sense. I, I don't know. It was... It was a bad plan. It was not a good choice. It was, there were other choices they could have made. Anyway, we'll get to. We'll In get to. Marty's trial, I know I'm starting to speed through my notes because I want to hear Eric's take. In Marty's trial, one question overshadows the the uh, the issue of 
uh, all the other issues. Uh, what I wrote there doesn't make any fucking sense. What was Marty's motive? Because Bobby, when he's gravely wounded, goes to him for help, and Marty stabs him, inflicting the gravest wound. So what was driving Marty? His defense attorney claims he wasn't part of the plot, and then he stabbed him in self-defense. But the jury is unmoved. He's found guilty of first-degree murder, and he is sentenced to death in the electric chair. Derek Kaufman, who delivered the final blow, is sentenced to life plus 30. Alice Willis is charged with luring Bobby to his death and being the ringleader. Lisa is charged with being the ringleader. Uh, Duh. Jim Schutz, the author of the book, says Bobby's parents had no sense of their son being a bully, and they do not acknowledge those claims in the interviews we see. They, they feel they're acting as if their son was a complete victim. He was a murder victim. But there seems to be no sense that they find him culpable for anything that happened to him. And I think given the brutality of the murder, that can be understandable. Yeah. Alice and her boyfriend Donnie are tried together in February 1995. Uh, Donnie had struck the first blow, so he gets second-degree murder and life in prison. Alice's defense attorney tries to make the claim that she suffered from something called learned helplessness, which is a disorder stemming from battered woman syndrome. And sororities everywhere. She never takes the stand. (laughs) The defense claims she ran screaming for her car during the murder. But in her taped confession, she admitted she acted as bait. To this day, she claims if she'd wanted him dead, she would have shot him. But she's still found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 17 years. Because that's years. how it works. Yeah, like, whatever. Luring him to his death is kind of the same thing as shooting him, girl. Lisa's attorney is going to claim, or did claim, I should say, I should stay in the past tense, that Marty planned the murder. Lisa takes the stand in her own defense and expresses remorse. Why they thought that was a good idea from a defense standpoint, I, given her previous behavior, is beyond me. Uh, In the end, the jury does not buy it, and on April 28, 1995, she's found guilty of second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit aggravated battery, which I thought was an interesting twist. The court proclaimed her a dominating force behind the murder, and she was sentenced to life in prison. On appeal, her life term was reduced to 22 years. Marty's death sentence was commuted to life in prison. We don't really hear how that happened or what was the process. Today, Derek is, and to, this is the today of the specials. This is quite a long time ago. Derek is out after six years. Heather was released after five years and then sent back to present, uh, prison for a parole violation. Because <laughs> Heather really just couldn't get it right. Marty has embraced Catholicism and preaches to others in prison. Alice is released in September of 2001. Lisa is released in February of 2004. Lisa and Marty remain in contact but refuse to accept responsibility for the murder, and Lisa insists to the day in which the special was released, maybe not to this day, that she never wanted Bobby murdered. She just wanted him beaten up. Okay. So let's talk about the Eric Shaw Quinn perspective. Well, what happened in this there was a moment in this particular special that was like, okay, there it is. After Marty is convicted, mm-hmm. they show reactions from people involved. Like Bobby's parents are feel vindicated and feel like, good, yeah. he should be. And he did murder their son. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can see why they would, would feel that way. But Marty's family felt very differently. And Marty's grandmother looks straight into the camera and says, oh, my God, that monster was molesting him. Mm -hmm. Of course he killed him. Mm -hmm. 
and then we never mentioned grandma or any of the rest of that again. Yeah. I think there was some really twisted sex thing going on with Bobby and Marty. I yes. think Bobby was, I'm going to use air quotes here, in love with mm-hmm. Marty in his domineering, psychopathic, abusive. sadistic, yeah. abusive way. Right. And he was raping that boy. Like, the the motive that they were looking for is that. I think he may even have been pimping him out. Yeah. They were in gay clubs and mm-hmm. doing all of that fringy stuff that they were... I. I think that there may have been a a, a more um, abusive, like, sexual component yeah. to it beyond just screwing him. But I think he was. I think that the animosity between Lisa and Bobby was because Bobby wanted Lisa out of the picture. Yeah. And I think Lisa's persistence in bringing women into the picture to throw them at Bobby was a way of mm-hmm. belittling Bobby. Right. Um, or trying to get him to, you know, get back on the path or whatever it was she was trying to do. But I think it was sexual combat between those two people. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them wanted the other. I think Marty was passive and suggestible Mm -hmm. um, in in those cases. And so I think in both the murder and his complicity and the sexual hijinks, if you will, of Bobby, um, he was unable to resist the stronger personalities of those two people. That's not that unusual, particularly when you have two such domineering and ultimately sadistic mm-hmm. um, personalities as those two. Like, she planned that murder. She got all those people involved, and she got that boy killed, and he was beating people up and raping people and doing all kinds of other Those were two pretty horrible people. Bobby was a horrible person. So I'm you not were saying, convinced of that? Oh, I didn't have any, even a moment's doubt. Like, you don't come, you don't bring that sort of ammunition to a Mm -hmm. fight when you're just annoyed with somebody. This wasn't a, it would be more convenient. Because the thing that is really, and the thing that they should have done was just go to the police. But that would have required Marty to admit, I don't think Marty was gay. I think Bobby was. Okay. And I think Marty didn't want to have to admit what was going on with him right and bobby so he so that was the reason that he didn't make it public but he also sexually abused the women in this particular mm-hmm. scenario as well none of whom went to the police there were ways of handling it but they didn't go that way they went the way of of exacting their revenge on bobby mm-hmm. which i think is telling of what led them to getting to that place i think he was absolutely um, doing the things that they were so angry at him about that they would kill him in this savage, horrible way. And then I think they were, you know, stupid enough mm-hmm. to think that they were going to get away with it or Lisa could, you know, since I didn't actually do the murder or whatever. And I think Bobby went along because Bobby went along. A, he wanted it to stop. Right. So why don't you just leave? Like, if somebody is, if like, these are grown people. Right. They weren't grown ups, but they were... 18 to 20, even right. older. So they were at a stage where they could have gone anywhere and done anything they wanted. If they didn't want to be around Bobby, they didn't have to be around Bobby. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. nobody was trapped in this situation. That's the thing that, like, jumped out at me. It was like, why was this the response? Like, like just get away from this guy. Like, And that's the thing that is the most telling to me. Right. 
Bobby was not going to let Marty go. Yeah. Bobby wanted Marty. Yeah. Yeah. In his own sick, twisted way, I think it was love. Mm-hmm. But I think Bobby was never going to let Marty go, and Lisa knew it. Yeah. And he was willing to abuse Lisa and Bobby and any woman that Lisa threw at Bobby, I mean, and Marty, and any woman that Lisa threw at Bobby, um, in order to continue to have Marty. And Marty knew he would never be able to get away no. because Marty was an abused and uh, an abused person with a weak um, sense of self. The learned helplessness. Yeah. As they were just saying, yeah. Well, that's that's pretty much what I believed. And I think, you know, what's occurred to me as I'm sitting here is unlike most of our true crime pairings, we this is... This is the case being covered from the most conventional angle possible, which was A&E in the 90s or the early aughts, I should say, with Bill Curtis. You know, Dad explains it, as we said earlier. And my eyebrows went all the way into my hairline. And next week, we're going to be see the case explored by one of the grittiest, most uh, sexually explicit, independent filmmakers from a different era, who I don't even know if he's still working today. His movies were so controversial. He did a movie called Kids, which I think had like something close to underage nudity. Like, it was really, like, these movies were really, and he's doing the case, his take on the case in a movie called Bullied, named after the, um... The book. The book, which I'm taking as a cue, means it's gonna, it follows the book rather closely. We obviously aren't discussing the book today, but, you know, the well, author we'll was Well, we'll talk about yeah. that in, the ne- in next week's show, yeah. but, um... <clears throat> that, but it was certainly based on that. Uh, yeah. It, it says so right, um, right up front, so... But it is fascinating to look back at how these issues were talked about or not talked about as recently as 15 or so years and ago. that's another component to what's going on. Like, right. b- being in love with a boy down the street, if you're a boy, is not the same thing now that it was at the time of this murder. Yeah. Like, for either of those boys, being sexually involved with a sa- another person of the same sex is not the same thing now that it was then. It is, yeah. it is a dramatic difference. This is the same time period, I think, when that guy murdered the kid who... The Jenny Jones case. Yeah, the Jenny Jones case. The kid yeah. confessed that he loved him on the, on television, and so he murdered him. Yeah. Like, like that, that's still this time period. Gay panic was still a defense yeah. that people wouldn't laugh out of a courtroom. Mm-hmm. They should have, but they right. didn't. Like, it was... You were still allowed to say whatever you wanted to about gay people in public and mm-hmm. get no real response. It was right. it was a very different sort of time period, and these kids were dealing with that, particularly those two boys. Like right. that was the core relationship. Everything else is really sort of around that. And Lisa was the catalyst for this explosion, but mm-hmm. but it was the relationship between Bobby and Marty that was ultimately. Um, the thing that I think set this chain of events in motion. I remember, and it won't, this won't get us into a discussion of the movie, but it will set us up for next week, which is not wanting to see this movie at the time because I knew it was about this case, and I didn't want it to be the gay movie that I had to see because I knew it was trauma and abuse-focused, and it was about all the things you just described. And I was like, and everyone, my gay friends were like, it's this hot gay movie. I'm like, that doesn't sound hot. Sounds like a fucking horrible crime story. Where's the movie about the actual hot relationship between the two boys who live on the same street? You know what I mean? And now we're kind of there. It made This whole pairing made me grateful for where we are on some of these issues, but also in how we cover them. So, yeah, and yeah. we can address some of that more next week when we talk about the actual movie. But, yeah, I think it is really 
I think it is the unmentioned, and they could mention it here because this was actually made contemporaneous with those terrible attitudes. Right. But those attitudes were a big part of what caused this story to be as tragic as it was. Absolutely. Nobody felt they could go to the authorities and say, you know, this guy is doing this stuff to me or whatever mm-hmm. in, in any sort of way and be heard or believed or helped. Yeah. All right. Well, as we've said ad nauseum, next week we will be doing a true crime movie time about Larry Clark's directed, the Larry Clark directed take on this case. It's called Bully. We will be discussing the unrated edition, which we streamed on Amazon, or I believe we rented on Amazon. It's out there. It's available. Uh, We'll have a lot to say about it, I'm sure. The truth is out there. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. (laughs) This is TDPS.